Good morning. Let me welcome you to Crossroads. We are excited that you're here. We're equally excited that many people are taking this opportunity to join us online because we know with school out, a lot of you decided, hey, you know what? I don't have to go to school next week, so I'm just going to travel. So again, we hope that you're enjoying us online at Facebook Live. So again, we ask you every time, almost every week, I ask you if you're joining us, share this from our Facebook page to your Facebook page. You know, I kind of say at the end of the day, if I can get 14, 15 shares, it just multiplies the amount of people who are going to see the message today. And not only today, they'll see it this week. So in the auditorium, whether you're here or whether you're at home, whether you're in the on the beach in Destin or whether you're Disney World, wherever you are, take just a moment, share it from our page to your page and enjoy this message today. Enjoy our worship today and enjoy it throughout the week. Again, uh, we're excited that you've joined us. You know, I thought today uh, it's only appropriate that we start today's service a little differently. It's been kind of a crazy week. Uh, you look at the news and you see the sad life of sad loss of life of 13 of our service people in a cowardly act of terrorism uh, as people were trying to be evacuated from the uh, airport in Afghanistan. And I'm not here to question leadership. I'm not here to point fingers. Uh, I'm here as the shepherd of this flock to tell you that it's time for the church to be the church and to start praying for the families that have been impacted. I don't know what that's like to get a knock at the door where somebody says your son or your daughter has lost their life defending freedom. I don't know what that's like. And I can't imagine what that's like. But as the church, here's the thing I'm going to kind of challenge you to do. I was talking with a friend this week, and these words just kind of resonated with me. I think God is kind of saying to us, I don't need you to go to Facebook. I don't need you to go to Instagram. I need you to come to me. We need to stop letting division rule. That's the enemy. And in situations like this, we need to come together. We need to be together all the time. We're not always going to agree. We're many times going to disagree. But there's one place that, that we share a common objective, and that's in prayer. That we can pray for God's best, and we can pray for God's protection, and we can pray for God's direction. So I'm going to ask you, whether you're here in the auditorium, whether you're at home, maybe you just want to get up from your seat here in the auditorium and you just want to come to the foot of these steps and and what we call the altar of this church. Maybe right where you're seated in this auditorium, you just want to kneel right in front of your chair. Maybe you just want to sit there. Maybe at home, you want to get down on your knees. And we just need to pray for the families of these 13 victims who lost their life defending freedom going to just invite you if you want to come down do that right now because again I think it's an appropriate thing to do to just really kind of bombard the gates of heaven and ask God to do what only he can do by his spirit would you join me in prayer this morning please God we don't have words we don't understand we don't have the ability to comprehend what it would be like to be a parent a wife, a husband, a brother, a sister who receives a knock on the door that says that our loved one has lost their life. We could point fingers at this administration or the last administration or the leadership. That's not what this is about. 
God, this is about asking you to strengthen and comfort these people who are experiencing one of life's greatest losses, the loss of a loved one. And God, we come together as a church and as a family and as a country asking you to strengthen them, to comfort them, to do what only you can do in their life as they bear this unbelievable loss. God, we do ask you to give our leadership wisdom and strength and direction in the coming days because it doesn't look like things are going to be easy. God, we know that you can make a way where there doesn't seem to be a way. And you're no respecter of persons. You're no respecter of political parties. But God, we ask you to go before and behind our leadership. State level, local level, national level. Give them the discernment, the wisdom to make the decisions that are best for our country and for its citizens. Good, sound, godly decisions. God, but most importantly this morning, we pray for these families of 13 Marines who lost their lives so that we could stand here and worship here and kneel here and sing here. There's no doubt that we live in a very difficult environment in these days. But God, we just lean on you to give us the strength and the direction that we need as we ask this prayer this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I would strongly encourage you to continue to be in prayer for these families over the coming days because, again, we don't know what the coming days hold. But I've told you that I believe that these are... I believe that we're seeing the book of Revelation play out in front of us. And if you know anything about the book of Revelation, you know that it doesn't promise to be a, an easy time, but it does promise to be a rewarding time for those who find their self in Christ Jesus, who find their identity in Christ Jesus. So no weapon formed against us can prosper. So just remember that and hold on to that uh, as times are uncertain and as times are difficult. Three weeks ago, we started a series that actually started with, uh, you know, kind of like two words. And I said, you know, what we're going to do over the next three or four weeks, we're going we're gonna to look at these two words and we're going to kind of, you know, start with these two words and we're going to say true or false. And again, most of us are very familiar with those two words because we grew up um, Lebanon High School, friendship in school, and somebody saying, hey, we're going to have a pop quiz. It's a true or false quiz. So again, we're quite familiar with those two words. But what I promised you we would do is that each week we were going to take and tag onto the words true or false a question that I think is really important when it comes to the life of faith. It's actually a question that many of us have asked uh, whether it was before we came to faith in Jesus Christ or after we came to faith in Jesus Christ. So basically every week what we've done is we've said true or false, and then we've tagged a question onto those two words. In the very first week of this series, we said this, true or false, God is there in times of a crisis. Again, when you think about what we're going through just this past week, you might want to go back and look at the week one message because is God there? True or false? He's with us in times of crisis. That was the first week. And then in the second week of this series, we said this, true or false, God cares about my failure. True or false, God cares when I fail. When, when failure is a part of my life, God cares about that. And then last week, we said, true or false, can I overcome 
temptation. But today we come to what I would say is probably one of the most debated and, and difficult questions to answer in our world today. It's probably, I would say, the number one question that causes people to divide. It, it, it kind of almost creates division with people. And the question is true or false? Jesus is the only way. True or false? Jesus is the only way to God. And let me tell you what really alarmed me this week. I mean, I already had this message prepared. I had basically the, 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 the skeleton, the bones of the message put together, but I ran across, I think it was actually on Facebook, it popped up in my feed, uh, a, a news source said that basically 60% of adults under 40 do not believe that Jesus is the only way. Again, it was a survey. It was Somebody conducted a survey. I don't know if it was Barna. I couldn't remember because I went back to look at it, and I could not find it. But the headline said 60%, now think about that, 60% of adults under 40 do not believe that Jesus is the only way to God. More than 2,000 years ago, there was a man that was born contrary to every law that life had set forth. We're talking about a man who lived in, a po in poverty. We're talking a man about a man who was raised in obscurity. Over 2,000 years ago, there was a man born who never hardly left his country. He traveled in obscurity. I mean, did not travel extensively. But once he did cross his, country, uh, his country's boundary, the, the country in which he lived, he did that in exile as part of his childhood. We're talking about a man who, who, who experienced neither wealth nor influence. His relatives were inconspicuous. In infancy, this man startled a king. In childhood, he puzzled lawyers. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature. And he hushed the seas to sleep. We're talking about a man who healed the multitudes without medicine. And even as he healed them, there was no charge for his service. We're talking about a man who never wrote a book, and yet all the libraries of the world could not hold the books that had been written about him. We're talking about a man who has never written a song, and yet this man has furnished a theme for more songs than all of the other songwriters combined. We're talking about a man who never practiced psychiatry, and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors far and wide. Once each week, all over the world, the wheels of commerce cease. And the multitudes wind their way to worshiping assemblies to pay homage and respect to this man. The names of the past statesmen of both Greece and Rome have come and gone. 
the names of the past scientists and the philosophers and the theologians, those names have also come and gone. But the name of the man that we're talking about this morning abounds more and more and more. Though time has spread some 2,000 years between people of this generation and the scene of his crucifixion, he still lives. Herod could not destroy him. The grave could not hold him. He stands forth upon the highest pinnacle of heavenly glory proclaimed of God. Acknowledged by angels, adored by saints, feared by the evil one as the living, personal, incomparable Jesus Christ. Today, as we look at the person of Christ, we're going to look at the most audacious thing that Jesus ever said. And let me tell you, there were some pretty audacious and pretty outrageous things that he said. Because if you look at the words of Jesus, if you look at some of the things that he has said, he, he was the one that said, you've got to lose your life to find it. He's the guy who said, you've got to love your enemies and you've got to pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is the man who said it's better that, that we give than to receive. He told us that the, the meek shall inherit the earth, and, and probably next week that's kind of where we're going to go. I want to look at the Beatitudes and some of the things Jesus said there. But Jesus said all kinds of outlandish things that actually cut against the grain of human nature. But by far the most outrageous thing that Jesus actually said, the most politically incorrect words that he ever said, that ever came out of the lips of Jesus, are found in John chapter 14 and verse 6 when Jesus said this. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Now look at those words. You talk about something that's politically incorrect, those are the words of Jesus, and there have never been, nor will there ever be, any words more politically incorrect than a person saying, I am the way and the truth and the life, and nobody gets to God except through me. I heard the story told of a, a man who was sailing in San Diego Bay and he said there were literally hundreds, if not thousands, of sailboats and small boats and yachts and kayaks and jet skis throughout San Diego Bay. And he said all of a sudden this like 1,000-foot-long aircraft carrier turned from the ocean into San Diego Bay, and it went right down the middle of the bay. He said, you just have to picture this. You have to be able to visualize this and see this. He said, here you have hundreds and hundreds of boats and jet skis and sailboats and yachts. And in that moment, all of them were scrambling to get to one side of the aircraft carrier or the other side. Every boater in that harbor had to make a choice what side they were going to go on. And that's the story of the person of Jesus Christ. For the last 2,000 years, the person and the ministry, listen to me this morning, the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ has gone head on, slowly but steadily, 
into the mass of humanity. And in doing so, the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ has caused all of us to go to one side or the other. When people are confronted with the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ, listen to me this morning, people are forced to make a choice. And one of the clearest teachings of Scripture is the teaching that tells us that there is a day coming. And the Bible calls it a day of reckoning. You see, when the Bible talks about that day, it says that all of humanity is going to be divided. All of humanity is going to be divided into two camps. And in one of those camps are going to be the people who acknowledge the person of Jesus Christ. Not only did they worship him, they acknowledged him, they followed him, they staked their life and they staked their eternity on him. So what is it? that makes Jesus like a wedge? What is it that makes Jesus like a big ship in a crowded bay that makes people scramble for one side or the other side? What is it about him that forces us to make choices? Well, I can tell you what it's not. It's not whether or not Jesus Christ actually existed. Because, see, that, that, that's a historical fact. I mean, if you can find an Encyclopedia Britannica or if you can go online and look it up, I, I actually like the hard copy. But if you look in the Encyclopedia Britannica, the Encyclopedia Britannica actually lists him as a bona fide first century personality. It will tell you that Jesus Christ was a first century bona fide personality, and it actually identifies him as the founder of the Christian faith. And believe it or not, it's not Jesus' teachings that forces people to take sides for him or against him. By that, I mean most people deeply respect the teaching of Jesus. I mean, people like the, the emphasis that Jesus had on love. I mean, again, think about some of the things that are issued today. People oftentimes, even atheists, will represent uh, and, and go back and talk about the teachings of Jesus. People always put emphasis on, on, on Jesus' teaching where he talked about the need for love and the need for honesty and the need for integrity. Most people appreciate Jesus' concern for the poor and the oppressed and the forgotten. Most people applaud his contribution to history, especially in the area of ethics and moral standards. So it's not about existence. And if it's not about his existence, that's the problem. If it's not about his basic teachings, then what is the, que what, what is the question? What is it about Jesus that causes such controversy? What is it that makes people have to make a choice one way or the other about Jesus? Well, I think you know what it is. The problem that most people have with Jesus is his claim to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world. That's the claim that sends people flying to one side of the bay or the other. 
I mean, it's those infamous I am statements that we heard in the drama of the, of the teachings of Jesus, when Jesus would say, you know, things about himself. I mean, right in the middle of some of Jesus' most brilliant moral discourses and some of his most amazing sermons on ethics, everybody would be, you know, applauding Jesus and saying, yes, 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 yes. And they would agree that Jesus is the, the most amazing teacher that's ever lived, the smartest person that's ever lived. And in the middle of that discourse or in the middle of that teaching, Jesus would say something like, oh, and by the way, I want you to understand I'm God's son. I'm the savior of the world. And people would go, oh, no, 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 wait. You were doing really good, Jesus. Why did you have to say that? Why, why, Jesus, why did you have to include that? Because the Nielsen ratings of your teaching, of your sermon, they were up and to the right until you said that. But why did you have to say that? It's all going so well until you said that. But here's the thing. With alarming regularity, Jesus would tell people that he was the Son of God. That he was the only savior for sin. You know, one time the disciple Peter burst out and said, you are, the, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, I'm so glad to hear you say that because you finally got something right. That one's right. You did good, Peter. Because I am the son of God. When Jesus was put on trial, it was kind of like he was under oath at the time. And he was asked point blank on the witness stand, are you or are you not the son of God? And the record tells us in Mark 14, verse 62, that Jesus responds to the question, are you or are you not the son of God? Jesus responds with two words when he says this, I am. All throughout history, all throughout the ministry of Jesus, he claimed to be God's son. And that's the very thing that invoked those dramatic responses. So today's going to be a little bit different. Because I'm not going to, I don't ever like to talk what I do preaching I just feel like it's kind of conversation, like it's talking, like it's, you know, it's just you and I. But for the sake of this conversation, I'm going to tell you this morning, I'm not going to preach from now on. I just want to go back. And I just want to track down some logical argument with you. And then you come to your own conclusion. Is Jesus the only way? Is Jesus who he says he is? Is he the son of God, the savior of the, the world? The only substitute for your sin. So let's just dive right in. First, let, let's just say that Jesus claimed to be the son of God. Because that's what he claims, that he's the son of God. Let, let's say that in fact that was not correct. Let's just say that's false. Let's say that Jesus was not God's son. 
Let's just say this morning for our our conversation purposes that he's not the Savior of the world. If that's the case, then either Jesus knew he was spreading false information, he knew he was spreading false claims, and if that's the case, what does it make him? It makes him a spectacular liar. Or maybe he didn't know. Maybe he didn't know that he was spreading false claims about his identity. If that's the case, then that makes him a self-deluded lunatic. So here's the question. What makes more sense to you? Is he a liar or is he a lunatic? I mean, think about it. He claimed to be the Son of God. Is he a liar or a lunatic? He claimed to be the Savior of the world. Is he a liar or is he a lunatic? See, to really get the answer to the question, you have to go down both of those roads. Is it reasonable to believe that Jesus' claims were the result of this carefully crafted and calculated attempt to spread falsehood? Was Jesus, if he was not the Son of God, was everything he did premeditated? Was he a premeditated premeditated liar? Well, I'm going to tell you from what historians tell us about Jesus. His life and his teachings set a new standard for morality and ethics of that day. I mean, even the people who didn't like Jesus, even his distractors, highly respected his honesty and his teaching about truth-telling. Is it reasonable for us to believe, for someone that became known and admired and respected for his moral teaching, would also be actively spreading lies about who he was? Could he be spreading lies about his true identity? Would Jesus, now think about this, would Jesus knowingly challenge family and friends to abandon their careers and to risk everything and follow him, even at the risk of death, if deep down he knew that he was just making it all up? I mean, would that be something that Jesus would do? Think about that for a minute. Further. When Jesus was finally arrested and beaten and spit at for claiming to be the Son of God, that was the offense that got him crucified for his claim to be God. If he was lying about that, if he was pulling everybody's leg about the whole deity deity thing, don't you think that about the time that they picked up the sledgehammer and they had the spike in their hand, And they put the sharp edge of that spike in the tender part of his palm. Don't you think right about then, and they're about to drive that nail through his hand into the wood? Don't you think about that moment, a liar, a con artist, who wasn't really telling the truth would say, oh, wait, wait, time out. I'm just kidding. I'm not really the son of God. I'm not really who I say I am. Friends, listen to me, that doesn't happen. 
con artists and liars get flushed out of the bushes when pain is introduced. When pain is introduced, it automatically flushes the con artist and the liar out of the bushes. And even as those nails were being driven into his hands, Jesus stuck to the facts all the way to the end. Because I'll tell you this morning something you can take to the bank. Listen to me this morning. People don't die for lies. People won't die for lies. So, okay. He probably wasn't a premeditated liar. Well, maybe if he wasn't the son of God and still claimed to be, then maybe he was crazy. Maybe he was a lunatic. Because here's the thing. You and I both know this. We've lived this. Hundreds of people every year claim to be the Messiah. Anybody know that? I mean, how many times do you see somebody in the news who's claiming to be the Messiah? Hundreds of self-described, self-deceived weirdos always claim to be on a mission from God. And the only people I know that were actually on a mission from God were the Blues Brothers, and they succeeded. Now, if Jesus maybe was a lunatic, then there would be certain patterns in his life that would actually give witness to that. If you would actually take the time to study his life. But here's the thing. Experts in psychology and psychiatry have gone over the life of Jesus with a fine-tooth comb looking for any little bit of psychotic behavior. But there's nothing. There's no psychotic behavior that exists. There isn't a trace of evidence, not a thread or a shred of a piece of information that would even suggest any type of cause for concern about the mental state of Jesus Christ. I mean, honestly, it's quite the contrary. Jesus, by all indications, was a picture of emotional, relational, and psychological health. His teaching was brilliant. The teaching of Jesus actually stunned the scholars. They saw him and listened to him, and the scope of his knowledge, as history records it, was breathtaking. His relationships were strong and secure. He was steady in adversity, and he was calm in crisis. In short, there is no basis by which to assess Jesus as being anything less than a healthy, whole, integrated person deserving respect and admiration. There was not a single sign of mental instability. So that leaves us with one more road we need to go down. Maybe his claims were true. Maybe he said he was the son of God because in fact, that who, in fact that's who he was. If that's the case, 
then you say to me, okay, then, then, then let's explore that. Let's go down that road. If he actually was the son of God, wouldn't there be some collaborating evidence to prove that? Wouldn't there be some evidence that actually would prove to me that he was the son of God? I mean, if the person claims to be the son of God, shouldn't he be able to show his stuff? Well, in fact, that's exactly what Jesus did. Let me give you some evidence to back up his claim that Jesus was the son of God. First, here's the first thing. The very first evidence was this. He led a sinless life. That's the evidence that we need to help prove that Jesus was the Son of God. If you're going to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world, then the first thing you're going to have to do is you're going to have to lead a sinless life. You're going to have to lead a perfect life. And the Bible tells us, listen to me this morning, the Bible tells us that even his distractors, even the people that didn't like him, could not point to a single time when Jesus said something or did something that violated the laws of characters of character, ethics, or morality. There was not one single time that Jesus violated the laws of character, morality, or ethics. I mean, they were so trying to accuse him that one time it got so crazy that Jesus came right out. And Jesus confronted them. People were saying, you're not who you say you are. You're not the Son of God. You're not the Son of God. And Jesus said, okay, wait, 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 wait. He said, you say I'm not the Son of God, but if I was going to be the Son of God, I would have to lead a perfect sinless life. The Son of God would lead a perfect life. Now listen to me this morning. He's saying this to his detractors. He's saying this to his enemies. He's basically saying, can you point out any faults in my life? I'm giving you a free shot. Take, 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 take a free shot at my life and tell me one thing that you can point out about my life, a fault in my life. Tell me something wrong. And again, the Bible says this in John 8, verse 46. Everybody just stood there. Nobody could point out a fault in Jesus' life. See, if you're going to be the Son of God, if you're going to claim to be the Son of God, you're going to have to leave a sin, live a sinless life. And Jesus challenges his detractors and says, okay, I'm giving you an opportunity. Point something out. And everybody stood in silence. Let, 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 me, let me give you something to, to run with. If you ever think you're the son of God, try that sometime. Just ask your friends, hey, I need a quick check. Can I get you to fact check me? <laughs> Am I the son of God? Do I look like the son of God? Can you point out anything in my life where I have ever said or done anything that didn't reach a standard of perfection? And you know what? People would come out with books about my life where I did not reach a standard of perfection. You ever think you're the son of God? You try what Jesus did, and you challenge people to point out the faults of your life. They'll point them out. They'll settle that problem in your mind really quick. But let's keep going. Here's the second thing, if you're the son of God. 
The second thing is this. You'd expect the Son of God to be able to do supernatural stuff, wouldn't you? Well, I mean, think about it. Jesus performed all kinds of miracles. Even secular historians in that day, they referred to the wonder-working power of Jesus. You know, every time I think about that, I think about that song we sang at the Baptist church. You may remember that. There's power, power, wonder-working power. That's, that's what they're talking about. People were healed. The lame walked, the blind saw. Jesus stilled the storm at sea. Now, here's the thing that's interesting about that. Those miracles weren't done over in some room where nobody could see them. Hundreds and thousands of people saw the miracles of Jesus as an eyewitness. Because Jesus had supernatural power at his command. But let's keep going. Look at the third thing. If you claim to be the Son of God, the third thing is this. Would the acid test of someone's claim of deity, of being the Son of God, would it be that person's ability to conquer death? Like his own death. Now, friends, friends, listen, listen, listen. For almost 2,000 years, the cynics and the critics have wondered what to do with all of the evidence that justifies the resurrection of Jesus. See, th- there's, the, th- there's this headache-producing problem called the empty tomb. Anybody know what I'm talking about? There's a headache-producing problem that we call the empty tomb. There's no reasonable explanation for who would have wanted to steal or hide Jesus' body. I mean, think about it. I mean, think about this, because, again, I don't know that anybody will ever challenge you to think about this. Jesus' enemies would have done anything to be able to parade a dead body around the streets of Jerusalem in order to silence the resurrection rumors. The last thing the enemies of Jesus wanted to have to deal with, they did not want to have to deal with an empty tomb. You say, well, okay, let's back up, Randy. Maybe Jesus' followers actually went into the tomb at night and they actually, actually stole the body of Jesus. They wanted to get the resurrection rumor around town, so they got into the tomb and they stole and they hid the body of Jesus. Well, there's two problems with that. First, the tomb was well guarded by the highly trained Roman soldiers. The second problem is even if the disciples, by some way, by some sleight of hand, could have gotten the body of Jesus out of the tomb and hidden it somewhere, don't you realize that sooner or later, as his disciples were arrested and beaten and put to death for actually proclaiming the miracle of the resurrection, Surely, one of his disciples would have broken down. 
I mean, think about it. If it wasn't true, if the resurrection was not true, don't you think that somewhere along the line, one of the followers of Jesus would have said, hey, you guys might be willing to die for this, this mess. I ain't going to do it. I'm going to go and show the Romans where we hid the body. Eventually, somebody's going to give in. When death is facing you and you know it's a lie, you're going to give in. You're going to cave in. But nobody did that. Not even one of Jesus' disciples cracked. You need to know that almost every close follower of Jesus was either arrested, beaten, or died. They were killed for proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not a single one of his disciples changed their story. Not a single one of them even edited their story. The testimony of hundreds of eyewitnesses is terribly difficult to refute, and people were talking about it widely. They said, you know what? I saw him. This is after the resurrection. I saw him in the upper room. I saw him on the Sea of Galilee. I saw him on the hillside. I could go on and on and on and give you more evidence of Jesus' resurrection. Because all of the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is compelling stuff. Lots of people have been converted to Christ just by studying the evidence of the resurrection. One of those people is Lee Strobel, who has written hundreds of books. Because the evidence, listen to me this morning, the evidence points to Jesus Christ being exactly who he said he was. The Son of God, the Savior of the world. Now, some of you are saying, okay, wait, 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 Brandon. I believe you're right. Because that's where the evidence points. The evidence points to Jesus Christ being the Son of God, the Savior of the world. But isn't it a little narrow-minded and arrogant for us to believe that Jesus is the only way? Now, now follow me. Track, track with me here. Isn't it narrow-minded and arrogant to believe that Jesus is the only way to God? Now, now listen, listen, follow me here. I would agree that Christians were being arrogant if the truth of the matter where there are many ways to get to heaven. And as Christians, we're just saying our way, our, our way, yeah, you can get there anyway, but our way is the best. See, I would agree that the Christians are being narrow-minded and arrogant if there were many ways to get to God, to get to heaven, other than Jesus, but we're just trying to convince you that our way is the best way. If that's what we were doing as Christians, I would say, yes, that's arrogance. That's narrow-mindedness. But that's not what they're saying. They're saying the truth of the matter is that someone has got to pay the penalty for the obvious wrongdoing that all of us have committed. So who's that going to be? Is it going to be you paying in eternity? Is it going to be me paying in eternity? Or is it going to be Jesus Christ? Is he going to pay the price as our substitute? 
Because he's the only one qualified. He's the only one qualified by his sinlessness and his divinity to be the substitute that you and I need. That's reality. The reality is it's not arrogant. Now listen to me. It's not arrogant to act upon the evidence. Christians are not being narrow-minded when they say that there is only one way to God. There is only one way to the Father. They are acting upon the evidence. So, so let, let me help you with this. Let me use an analogy. A couple has a beautiful baby daughter. A beautiful baby daughter. But shortly after the birth of this baby, the baby develops jaundice. And you you may be familiar with jaundice. Jaundice is a liver disorder that causes the whites of the eye and the skin to turn yellow. And and the doctor sees what's happening to this this beautiful little baby girl, and and he tells the parents that this is a potentially devastating disorder that your baby girl has. But fortunately, there's an easy cure for jaundice. All you must do to cure your baby of jaundice is to take your baby and put that baby under a special light. And when you put your baby daughter under that light, the skin absorbs the light. And then it stimulates the liver. And the liver starts to function properly. And see, here's the thing. As a parent, you, you could have responded as the, as the parents of this beautiful baby girl. You could have said, now, wait, 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 wait. Okay, wait, wait a minute. Doctor, that sounds too easy. You're asking us to put her under a light? How about we do something different? How about we scrub her with soap and water and dip her in bleach and see if her skin turns the normal color? Because I'm sure if we scrubbed hard enough, we could get that skin coloring back to its normal self. And the doctor would have said, wait, 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 wait. You don't understand. There's only one way to cure jaundice. There's only one way. And see, the parents could have responded, well, I don't like this one-way thing. How about if we just ignore the jaundice and we pretend that everything's okay? And if we sincerely believe that we don't have to do anything, then in the end, everything's going to work out, right? The doctor would have probably responded by saying, you don't understand, you're going to jeopardize the life of your child if that's what you do. There's only one way to cure jaundice. You're hesitant because it sounds too easy. But go into my office. Look look at the credentials on the wall. Look, look at my medical degree. 
I've studied in the best medical schools in this country. And I've cured countless babies of jaundice. So as the parents, I'm asking you, trust me based on my credentials. Now let me ask you a question. Listen listen to what I'm saying. Would anybody accuse those parents of being narrow-minded if they trusted the doctor? A doctor with credibility? A doctor with credentials? When that doctor said, there's only one way. There's only one course of treatment that's going to cure your little girl. Would it be narrow-minded for them to pursue that course of treatment? No. Listen to me this morning. It's not arrogant to act upon the evidence. Because the truth this morning is this. You have the same terminal illness that I have. It's called sin. The reason that those of us who are Christians cling to Jesus Christ, you know why I cling to Jesus Christ? It's because I know him as the great physician. Jesus is the only one that has the medication that can cure me. See, I can try to scrub away my sin by doing good deeds. You can try to scrub away the sin in your life by doing good deeds. But let me tell you this morning, it ain't going to work. You can ignore the things that are happening in your life, the sins that you committed, and you can think that maybe they'll just go away if you ignore them, but it won't disappear. We can sincerely think that there's another way of dealing with the sin problem that all of us have. But if you think there's another way, let me tell you, you're going to be wrong. The truth of the matter is only the great physician offers the treatment that's going to erase the stain of sin that's on your life right now. And we turn to God. Jesus Christ as the only way. And when we do that, listen to me this morning, that's not arrogant. That's not being narrow-minded. Because we're acting in accordance with the evidence. So here's the thing I want to tell you about Christianity. It's unique. Christianity cannot be reconciled with any other religion. Because it backs up its claims with credibility and credentials. And it does so like no other religion can. That's the very reason why when Jesus said 2,000 years ago, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Listen to me this morning. When Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, you know what history did? History didn't laugh when Jesus said that. Instead, history was forever changed. 
by the words of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on that cross to pay the price for my sins and for your sins. And I warned you last week. I'm going to warn you again today. In love, I'm just asking you, get your life right. Get your house in order. Don't be too naive to think that you're not seeing the book of Revelation played out in front of you right now. You are a willing participant in Scripture. Whether you accept it or believe it or not, it's happening now. And I'm going to tell you this morning, at any moment, the trumpet of God could sound and we could be raptured out of here. The question is, will you be ready? Will you be looking for another way? Let me tell you, there's no other way. Jesus said it. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. Have you made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Don't leave this place today until you do. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? God, it's simply the evidence that scripture and history provides that Jesus is who he says he is the son of God the savior of the world so God all across this building and all across the airwaves whether those are audio airwaves or whether those are pictures with sound people have the opportunity in this moment to place their faith in Jesus Christ to give their life to him the son of God the savior of the world the sinless substitute for our sins. Let me ask you this morning, have you done that? Wherever you are, whether it's in this auditorium or somewhere else, you just simply look to God and pray. Say, God, in this moment, I, I, I just feel this, 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 this peace about understanding now that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The evidence has been presented to me. And God, I realize that there's something missing in my life. And I've realized that's Jesus. Place your faith in Jesus, that he is who he says he is, and that he'll do what he says he will do right where you are. Turn from your sin and turn towards him as the author and the finisher of your faith. God, all across this room, in hotel rooms, in offices, in homes, in cars, people need Jesus. It's not going to get any better. And who would want to walk into this world every day without him? My prayer this morning, God, is in this room and wherever people are, that they have prayed a, pr a simple prayer. They've understood the evidence credentials and the credibility of the evidence. The 
believing that Jesus is who he says he is and that he will do everything he says that he is that he will do. God, that we can rest in. That today lives have been changed. Eternity has been changed. And that one day we will be there together with the angels saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's sooner than later. My prayer today in this room and wherever you are is that you will have made the decision to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. God, we love you and we thank you for a time of worship. We thank you for a nation where we can worship freely. As we ask this prayer this morning in Jesus' name, amen. But until that day comes, we'll live to know you. 